Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. This is Sarah Merrick with the Church Times podcast and I'm here today talking to James Runcie, um, the author, about his wonderful new book, which is called Tell Me Good Things on Love, Death and Marriage. Welcome, James. It's lovely to have you with us. Can you start by just telling us a little bit about what the book's about? Yes. Well, it's lovely to be here with you, Sarah. It's about grief and love, and I hope it's also about gratitude and thankfulness. It's a memoir of my wife who died in 2020 after 35 years of marriage, Marilyn, and we were very happy together and for the last five years she was ill but not obviously ill and for the last six months she was very obviously ill indeed with motor neurone disease and it was a really terrible time completely and in the middle of the pandemic so it was very hard to deal with both on a practical level in terms of nursing and availability of staff and also in terms of coping with accelerated decline very fast, which I'm told I should be grateful for. And in many ways, I am grateful that it wasn't spun out over a long, long time. Um, But it meant that your coping mechanisms were always catching up rather than dealing with it. Not that I think necessarily there is a coping mechanism that if we'd been given two years more, we'd have got better at it. I'm, I'm rather grateful we didn't have two years more, if that's not too insensitive. Um, So the book is an attempt to come to terms not only with that, but also to rescue her from the disease and to talk about marriage in a way that is more than the last six months or two years, but to talk about what a life has meant, to not let the disease dominate. In a way, it's my revenge against motor neurone disease. That, I suppose, is one way of describing it as the impetus of it. Mm. And also, as a writer, I've written a lot of books, and people obviously write a lot of memoirs. And um, what on earth would make mine any different to anybody else's? And I thought two things. One is Marilyn. She was very different and very vivacious and joyous and had enormous velocity of character and the second is I thought I would try and make it funny I thought I would have jokes in it and celebrate her life so it's called at the beginning bereavement a comedy in the broadest sense in the way that you could argue that the bible is a comedy because it ends with hope so uh, that is it's comedy in the broadest sense but it's also a marking of time and a marking of a relationship. Thank you. Um, And it is a beautiful book. We'll come on to a bit more detail in a minute. And I also, I love the humour in it as well, and the warmth. Um, So I think my first question is, how are you feeling today? It's it's two years since she died. Yes. Well, um, okay, kindness is always a problem. If you ask me nicely, how are you feeling today? Obviously, that makes you want to cry. Um, because you cope and you deal with it. And I feel differently about everything. I think that grief comes at you at different stages and in different ways. And I think that writing a book, I finished it a year ago. So it's been a year since that. And those are very much the experiences of a year ago. And I dealt with it. I, I suppose I turned grief into a story in order to find some way of dealing with all the things that had happened in a way of defining my relationship and my grief and 
And in a way, you can't fully define it. You have to leave stuff out and you have to keep stuff for yourself. What I've kept for myself, I don't actually know. But I put in all that I could think about putting in and tried to be as honest as possible. And there are certain, obviously, no-go areas um, to do with upsetting my children. Mm. And uh, although I've gone quite far with lots of things um, and... You know, there's there's quite a lot of swearing in it, which I didn't anticipate doing, but there is. And so I feel most of the time, I I think it's fine. You you go about your daily business, you try to keep busy, you know, you do all these things. And then suddenly something happens or you're reminded of something. Um, My publisher, Alexandra, who my editor, gave me a present yesterday because it was published yesterday. And um, it was a very simple um, a, a pair of um, uh, um, espresso cups and saucers. And um, that was all. It was just a pair of cups. And I opened it. But they were designed by Susie Cooper, who was Marilyn's favourite China designer. And when we first were together, um, she served tea on the same kind of china. And it was the most ridiculously appropriate, accidentally appropriate mm-hmm. present. And it was beautiful with um, a tea towel with a tulip on it. And I thought, well... And uh, it was Marilyn's birthday on Sunday. I thought well, she could have given that to Marilyn for her 75th birthday rather than to me. And so that completely generous, loving, thoughtful gesture was far more loving, far more generous and far more thoughtful than she'd ever anticipated it being. And obviously, as a result, it was upsetting, even yes. though it was really kind. Yes. So that kind of thing. Yes. And, and I imagine um, if you were writing the book today, you might write a slightly different book. Yes, I would write a different book because things are different now after, and, you know, two years, over two years of grief is different from one year and different from one month and different from one week. And I imagine in 10 years' time it might be very different. But you you do, there's massive cliche alert to all of this, you know, one day at a time, um, or even one day at a time, sweet Jesus, which is what Marilyn used to say. Um, so you 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 live as best you can, and yes, you do feel differently, and just the way you look at your life differently. You know, you look at. I don't know. I never imagined my little girl would seven year old girl who's permanently framed as a seven year old girl would get to be thirty three and have children herself, and also. Bizarrely, because she's 33, she's roughly the same age as when I met Marilyn, and she's now started to look like Marilyn. And I saw her on Sunday wearing a coat of Marilyn's and a necklace of Marilyn's and thought, this is a bit odd, but also comforting, Mm, mm, but also lovely. Yes. And do you feel now, you obviously made choices, you referred to that, the editorial choices. I mean, do you feel glad about the choices you made in terms of what you put in and what you left out, or, or do you not even... No, I think I feel it. pleased about it as a piece of writing and as it is what it is. I sometimes, and, and it is as honest as I could make it. And, but it, this sounds very strange, but in a way it almost has nothing to do with me anymore mm-hmm. because it's been turned into something that is yes. not. And there's, of course, a big difference in writing something which you write privately and then publishing it. And yes. you could argue that I shouldn't have published it or I should have given it to... 50 friends and that's it you know rather than sending it out into the world but it it is meant to be of some benefit to other people who are bereaved and it's meant to be entertaining as well and it's meant and I am a writer and that is sort of my job and you talk about um Dr Johnson's moral instruction tell us a bit about that 
Well, I've, I've written two plays about Dr. Johnson, and I'm a great fan of his essays and sermons, and I'm a great fan of his practicality. I mean, the fact that he wrote Rasselas, uh, The Pursuit of Human Happiness, in a week to pay for his mother's funeral. Um, and Johnson wrote about um, a lot of, th- obviously, a lot of things. I've written plays about his dictionary and his visit to Scotland. But one of the most extraordinary things is the sermon he wrote that should be preached um, on the death of his wife and the preacher refusing to preach it because it was too hagiographic. And Johnson's, we don't really know what Johnson thought, but anyway, Taylor, the preacher, preached a totally different sermon and Johnson published the sermon. And um, in his essays, he talked about that one of the purposes of an essay is moral instruction in the art of bearing calamity. Mm. And that's what I wanted to do. So you could argue, of course, as you argue, I might argue that Grantchester is the same. It is a sermon, a series of 20 sermons on grief, or it's a so 20 essays on grief taking different aspects. And there are even texts from Johnson and from um, Chekhov that go through the book. So um, I didn't have the privilege of knowing Marilyn, but um, she leaps off the page. Um, for our listeners who haven't yet read the book, can you just paint a little picture of her, tell us a little about her? Yes. So it's hard to know where to begin. She was Scottish uh, and very pale and very joyous and had incredibly pale skin, and but was very enthusiastic and would greet people incredibly warmly. And towards the end, she would greet people with this great phrase, hello, gorgeousness, which is what I kind of wanted to call the book. Um, but it's a bit too, for various reasons, I didn't. Um, but she was an optimist and cheery and one thing I said to our daughter once was make sure you marry a cheerful person Mm. and she was always looked for the best in people and had no malice in her and was a very generous person so she was an encourager she was a theatre director she was a singer first a folk singer and a theatre director and a radio producer and made plays and this idea of making a play um, she would sometimes make a play out of a situation or a family lunch she would want it all to go well and everyone to be involved so she would direct absolutely everything including my behavior which I would sometimes you know, get some milk out of the fridge and say, I do really don't need to be directed how to get milk out of the fridge. I don't need to be told how to do this. I can get the milk myself. She always wanted to control, because she was a control freak, uh, which is difficult because I am too. So that made it quite uh, punchy at times, not literally. But she was she was a lark, actually, and she dressed in kind of larky, quite expansive clothes, bright colours and lots of clangy jewellery and um, had a lovely laugh and uh, the most beautiful, soft Scottish voice, but a most beautiful voice. I think the voice was, well, along with many other things, but that was the thing that did it for me. You talk in the book beautifully, you use this image of, because because of the people you are, because you're theatre people and you're, you know, arts people, about sort of planning this great production of her last days, which I thought was 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 moving and funny all at once. Uh, tell us a bit about about that. How you approached the, the well. End. We're we're used to in the theatre. You build up towards the first night, and it struck me that the process of death, where you build up to a last night, was curiously it was curiously ironic that you arranged the set and the costumes, you arranged the living room and the bedroom and what people are going to wear and the lighting even, candles. And and it became a production. And I suddenly thought this is actually quite like a theatre production for one performance, Mm. the performance of death. And that was the way 
we ran it really, but you don't know when the show's going to open. <laughs> you don't know when it's going to close. Um, but it's still there's a sort of and the paraphernalia of caring for somebody became like a theatrical production, but with no audience because it was a pandemic. So um, nobody came, which was in a way a good thing because she didn't want to be seen in decline. She wanted to be remembered at her best. So she was grateful actually for that because she didn't want people to see her because it was not great. Um, and then in the end you can't speak, so that's horrible. But the idea of preparing is something I, I got from my father because he prepared for his death and the advantage, ho-ho, of illness rather than sudden death is that you have time to get ready for it. And he wrote his own funeral service and Marilyn and I prepared her memorial service as a, as a last show as a, mm. and all her friends and all the things and the music she wanted and, the, and we did all that and it was a great, great thing to do, lovely thing to do. So we planned it all and... Um, you plan also to inoculate, inoculate yourself against the terrible tragedy of the moment. And, of course, it doesn't help at all, really. I mm. mean, it still comes. Mm. You know, you still mm. are faced with the tragedy or the great emptying moment where you think, oh, that's it. Oh, uh, and the silence and the void and what do we do now? And you mark the moment and then, then, you, then you don't know what to do with the rest of your life. You know? mm. And that still comes, no matter how much you prepare. Yeah. That still comes. And no matter what people tell you, you can't really deal with it to begin with because it's yours and it's unique to you. You talk, though, about a, a finding yourself almost unconsciously drawing on phrases from the Book of Common Prayer or the Bible because you grew up with that. Yes. Um, and was that how, how did that sort of flow into this process? Well, I think music and the parables. And I read the Psalms to my father, um, and I read some to Marilyn, but not very many read her books. But yes, the flow of stories and the, the flow of comfort, yes, and a lot of music. I have to be careful because it's so emotional and so rich. And so, you know, to play Bach or to play Mozart was had to be limited because mm -hmm. it would make us cry, mm -hmm. you know. And actually, there's only so much crying you can mm -hmm. do, really. Mm -hmm. um, but obviously, looking at... John Donne's sermons for Death's Jewel, his one of his last sermons. It might be his last, might be his last sermon, but Death's Jewel, John Donne, and John Donne's poetry, and George Herbert's poetry, Gerald Manley Hopkins, um, No Worse There Is None. Those kind of things were all mm, very helpful. Mm, mm. And another thing that was very striking was thinking of the, the reading and the listening to music and and sharing poetry and so on a lot of your friends are actors or performers and and some of them sent you the most beautiful gifts which was was sort of stories read by them or yes. poems can you tell us a bit about that well i think pip torrens my best friend the actor uh, read every single jeeves story i mean incredible i mean there are hundred loads of them but he read them, them all deborah finley read poetry siobhan read redmond read poetry Joanna McGregor did a little recital, a pianist Joanna did a little recital from her front room just for Marilyn. Um, it was extraordinary. They did what they were good at, you know. Our friend Hattie Baines read Rebecca and she read it rather comically because she would throw in comments saying, oh, the light's fading. I don't think I can read this very well anymore. <laughs> and uh, she was very funny about it. Um, but they all, yes, the actors all, an artist, Patrick Hughes, sent a pet painting and everyone's so generous because they... People sometimes say, I don't know what to do in grief, or I don't know what to do with... But actually, they did know what to do, because 
you're a writer or you're a poet or you make things and artists, you know, people made soup and, you know, that that's a very loving thing. You know, they did practical things. We weren't asking for big conversations. And in a way that was, we were spared the goodbye conversations. Mm. Lots of friends coming to say goodbye and see her for the last time. They felt robbed, but I think Marilyn felt grateful that, as I said, you know, she would be remembered at her, in her best and at her prime. So they can all remember her at her best. And then, of course, we had this massive show-off memorial where they all came and did their stuff. So when was that? I'm just thinking about the timing and the restrictions. <clears throat> it was ages. It was, it was yes. ages later. No, it was only uh, a year ago. So it was after 50... So we had a tiny funeral yes. in for, for 11 people, um, which was very beautiful in, uh, off, uh, in Fife or on a hillside. It was couldn't be more romantic mm. in a funny way with a piper mm. and then we had the full theatrical the full mm. lovey you know with mm. all the actors and all the musicians and the Dunedin consort and everybody and it was absolutely the full show um you know and absolutely uh, what you wanted it to yes, be yes it was what? packed yes. and in Canongate Kirk in in Edinburgh it was an extraordinary thing because we had the same priest who had come to see Marilyn when she was first diagnosed, who'd seen her after she died, who took her funeral, who then took the memorial. It was Neil Gardner. So we had a consistency of priesting, which was incredibly comforting. And he was wonderfully to the point that he said to the children, she doesn't need her body anymore, which I found very haunting and helpful. It sounds as if it was pastoral care at its absolute best. It was, it was. It was, he was really... Uh, what we call in our family a proper priest. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> there were also, sadly, some people who just couldn't help but put their foot in it and say the wrong thing. Um, so just because it might help other people in the future, what is what is the wrong thing? What are the unhelpful things that people said? Yes, well, uh, the, uh, there's a chapter in the book called What Not to Say, mm. and it is meant to be a sort of helpful guidance as to what not to say. Funnily enough... Texting, I, how are you, is the thing that finished me off, actually. Mm. Just three words. How are you? Mm. And you want to say, well, how do you think I am? Yes. You know, how are you is very quick to write. Sometimes it's just said, how are you, X. And yes. you think, well, one, who is this from? And two, that took you eight seconds, and now I'm supposed to reply, and you want some kind of fulsome reply. I don't have yes. time to do that. So how are you was the thing that I found most difficult. I'd rather have, you must be feeling terrible, let me know if there's anything. Although, let me know if there's anything I can do. You have to mean that. And what Do you really mean that? Um, do you mean, you know, cook a meal? Or do you mean mm. paint the house mm. or mm. something? Um, so, that, you have to mean what you say. Uh, I found the most helpful things were, it must be terrible sending you all our love. Yeah. No need to reply. No need to reply. Yeah, no need yeah, to reply yeah, is also helpful. Yes. But sending you all our love, thinking of you, yeah. it must be awful. Sending you all our love, your solid strength, solidarity, love, all those things. Just sending affirmative messages mm-hmm. is wonderful. Mm-hmm. How are you is not. Um, call me anytime. There was two of spectacular ones were call me anytime, Saturday afternoons are best. Yeah. It's not quite any time. Yeah. And... Uh, the, the kicker, the absolute kicker was twice, actually, I had make sure you make the most of this precious time you have left. Oh, I was thinking of frittering it away, actually. <laughs> yes. I was thinking of ruining it. I was thinking of wasting it. I was thinking of going on holiday on my own. <laughs> yeah. yes. Get used to the idea of living on my own. I was thinking, yeah, I wasn't going to enjoy wa- wasting it. Make sure you don't waste this precious time. No, I'll try not to. No, it's pretty crass, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, really is. Um 
Um, you also talk in the book about about in a in a culture um, where perhaps the church isn't particularly at the forefront of people's minds, or people don't talk about faith. That actually there's a link with the interest in crime fiction, and that's really interesting. Of course, you're very well known for your Grantchester novels. Tell me a bit more about your thoughts about crime fiction and why and the hole it fills. Well, I think there are two major things about this. One is that crime fiction. You have to have a crime, which generally, it can be robbery, but it's generally murder. And so you are facing death immediately, and in a crime fiction, it has to come pretty early on. So I think crime fiction makes you, forces some kind of confrontation with death. I think that, let's say 100 years ago, the Book of Common Prayer was perhaps more prevalent in everyday life, and people would pray about perils of the night and I've written about I've written one of the Grantchester mysteries is called Sydney Chambers and the perils of the night and it's about the fear of death and I think because we now try to a lot of people try to keep death removed from as much as possible from everyday life we don't have that ecclesiastical reminder so much um, that people like to keep it at a distance so when it comes it comes much more of a torrent it's much more frightening because people are unused to it they don't think about it so much so it, it becomes this kind of awful thing that you're trying to pretend doesn't exist. It's like people who won't say the word cancer for fear they might mm. get it. And what, what, what strikes me is that crime fiction forces you to do that and also it provides resolution because obviously somebody's guilty and someone's mm. responsible and it, it seals it off. But it gives people the opportunity to have imaginative thoughts about the nature of life, death and moral responsibility and what a life means and what loss means. And so it's a, it's another practice, it's another bit of um, anticipatory bereavement. And are you still writing Grantchester novels? I'm not. I was thinking of doing one more, but I think I'm going to have a little break. Mm. Um, what I'm trying to do now is write something that isn't so emotionally wrecking um, and write just an entertaining crime story set in Scotland in the 1840s, but something that doesn't do my head in, really. Because in amongst writing this book, if I've understood the timing right, it, you, you're also writing your most recent wonderful novel, The Great Passion. Yes. So the, and they, they, there are there's lots of interleaving. There is overlap, yes. Tell us a bit the, about that. Well, I was finishing the Bach novel, but of course... I was, it, the Great Passion is about the St. Matthew Passion and is about a year in Bach's life, essentially, in 1727, the year he wrote it, although it begins with, guess what, Bach's funeral, mm. um, and then looks back. And so it's obviously about the music of love, suffering, grief, and consolation. And so I'm writing about that, and at the same time, as I was finishing it, I was, Marilyn was dying, and my daughter Charlotte said, do not tinker with that book because it will finish you off. And I said, no, I think I can she said, do not write another passage about grief or about stuff. Yeah. And of course I did. Yeah. Um, but um, I found it a, a, a rehearsal in a way and very comforting. And I read it to Marilyn because she wanted me to and it was a way of reading Middle Land. It sounds rather a vain thing to do to read your novel about Bach to... A wife who can't really answer back very well, but she did. And then, of course, I couldn't do the ending very mm. easily because it's all about love after death. And it was impossible to read it, really. Anyway, I got through it, but it was very, very hard. And I thought, mm, I'm not sure I'll be doing that again. And funnily enough, I was asked by Radio Scotland to read it. And I found that very, very hard. Mm. It's weird because it wasn't on the main subject. It was on Bach. And 
I feel I can sort of deal with things in this memoir. I can deal with things head on. It's when things come to you from the side mm, that is mm, difficult. They trip you up, don't yeah. they? Yes. Um, and am I right? This is the first um, memoir you've written. You've written yes. plays, you've written novels. Yes. Yeah. And I hope it's the last <laughs> right. as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I don't want to yes. plan to write any more or any more autobiography or anything. No, that's it. It's standalone. What I really want is a rest now. Yes. Um, or some kind of emotional rest uh, because I'm too emptied yes. you know I can't I, I'm a writer so I'm supposed to be writing and I am writing something and it's alright it's going alright but of course the problem is I don't really care about it yeah. because yes. I, I'm not because I'm not invested and I don't know how to care about something that is not deeply personal but I don't want to write deeply personal stuff because it's too upsetting and I don't I don't think I've got anything left to offer yeah. or give until yeah. I've got a bit more experience or so I'd like to just you know people talk about sabbaticals I think I'd like yes. a sabbatical from writing um, and the, read more and think more listen to music and yeah. just not have to write the well is a bit dry it's completely parched yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's, and I mean there are people who haven't gone through a bereavement who've, who have found that about about the pandemic actually yes, that the well I, is dry yeah. so combined with this enormous traumatic loss yes I, I find that's one thing I'm um, curiously ungenerous and I've lost patience with people talking about their pandemic I think oh yeah, yeah. alright I'll raise <laughs> you try mine <laughs> try mine exactly, yeah. exactly yes and of course you entered bereavement when there were still lots of restrictions on seeing people yes yes massive Massive. It was it was completely terrible. There's no there's no way round no. describing it. But you that's a funny thing is because you are quite busy. So you're busy organising a funeral or busy organising possessions or I haven't done the whole clear out thing. I've still got Marilyn's clothes and her shoes, things like that. Um did give away some of her jewellery to her friends and the family. And so you wrap up jewellery or you you know, you think about books and you've got, you write letters and they say you can be quite active, but it does your head. And, and then you and then you just watch football and drink too much. Mm-hmm. And then you think, I better not drink any more of that. Um, and um, yes, and you, you don't know. And you can't answer, back to the question, how are you? I don't know. I don't know how I am. I have no idea really. Mm. How are you? Tell me mm. stories. And then people, your nice friends tell you stories and you you think, well, that's quite interesting. How how amazing, how incredibly normal, mm. but how banal, mm. you know. Mm. And so you find that, and then you feel you don't like yourself for thinking your friends are banal because they're talking about putting in a new patio. You think, really? Really, you think, why on earth do you think I'm interested in your mm. new patio? And that's really preoccupying them, and they're annoyed that the builders bought the wrong slabs. And you kind of think, Really? Wrong slabs? Uh, no, because you see, the thing about the slabs is they're not, they're not, the, the eco slabs we wanted are not, they can drain, they've got better drainage. You know, why am I, well, I'm grateful for you to talking about this because it means I don't have to speak. But I really didn't think I'd be listening to slab drainage issues. And that must be exhausting, that sort of, you know, cognitive dissonance and yes, sort of the gratitude. So I'm there. grateful for sport yeah, because yeah. cricket and football you can watch and, and just lose yourself and it has a drama of its own. So that is the complete displacement. So the World Cup is World Cup's fantastic. Yeah. Yes. The um other last Christmas I went with my friend Lucinda to the Messiah and that was absolutely disastrous <laughs> because it was so and it was beautiful. 
and it was like it was done by the Dunedin concert on the Wigmore Hall and it was like hearing the music for the first time it had this incredible freshness dynamism attack it was absolutely beautiful and it's hopeful of course the Messiah mm-hmm. um, but it's all about my childhood my faith the loss of Marilyn and at half time half time football <laughs> analogy yeah I thought I can't go back in yeah. but I did I did. And then I couldn't leave the seat, you know, and it was just too... But it was wonderful as well as completely terrible. It was also utterly wonderful because Mm. it was the most vital, energetic, wonderfully resolving piece of music. And it keeps coming. They're piece after piece, aria after aria. It's just fantastic. But you think, no, I can't deal with this anymore. But you do. And it's one... And I'm glad we did it. But Mm. God, Mm. blimey. Mm. Are you able to listen to Bach? Quite hard, I have to ration that. Yes. But I'm looking forward to Advent. I did listen early to Cantata 61 on on the way to my daughter's on Sunday. And I like that. I like the... I'm able to listen to the joyous cantatas. Yes. So Christmas and Advent, very good time. Yes. The Good Friday, not so good. No, um, But um, Christmas, this is nice. And I'm going definitely... And I said to Lucinda, I want to go to church on Sunday for Advent, for the beginning of Advent. And she said, where do you want to go? Would it be Canterbury by any chance? I said, yes, of course. <laughs> yes, of course. Um, and I like darkness and light. You know, I like the idea. I want to go to a church where there's darkness and candlelight and then the light coming into the world and that'll be very moving. And I will cry, but it what you know, it's better than going shopping. Of course. And it sounds as if you've got a great library of resources, you know, with all with all the, the literature, yes. with all the with the music, with the church, with everything. You've got a great you know, and that you can draw upon That's the point of it. It Absolutely. enables you to talk to the dead and the dead are with you and come back to you and you have the best of literature, the best of music, the best of art. I like going to art galleries, I like going to exhibitions, I like looking at beauty, I like looking at meaning. You know, I'm not wild, as I've, I think I've made clear about small talk. And I like the big issues. I like beauty. I love looking at a Rembrandt, you know, and I love listening to some Bach and I love reading the Psalms or I love reading Dickens, anything really, anything that celebrates the exuberance of life. Yeah, yes. And that comes across very clearly in this book, which is very very beautiful and thank you for it and i don't think we really touched on it but we should add that it's actually also very funny you know we've, we've, so, we've talked yes. about some of the sadder parts but there are some wonderful moments there's some anecdotes yes there's some well-practiced yes anecdotes. I, I particularly like the, the the care agency where the carer doesn't know the difference between a fetish and a phobia yes. i think <laughs> readers need to explore that on their own but there are lots of nuggets in there where you where you find humor So thank you very much, James. Thank you for writing it. Um, Thank you for sharing it with us. And thank you for talking to me now. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you for coming. It's very moving and important and lovely to do. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to The Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more.